If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome back to our new monthly series, History Behind the Headlines. In each episode, our expert panel will be exploring the historical news stories that have caught their eye and the history that will help you make sense of what's going on in the world. Each month, I'm joined by our two regular panellists. Anna Skoda, I'm a tutor in late medieval history at St John's College in Oxford. And I'm Rana Mitter, I'm the ST Lee Chair in US-Asia Relations at the Harvard Kennedy School and I work on modern China. Hello to you both and thank you so much for being here. We're going to be doing something a little bit different in this episode, which is to look back at the history behind some of the big stories we missed from 2023 and I suppose also what they might tell us about the next 12 months. So first of all, we're going to be talking about quite a big topic, which is that of democracy. And Rano, I believe you saw a story that you'd like to talk about to start us off on this. Well, that's right, because the year just about to come up is actually, at least by some counts, going to be the most democratic year in human history, by which I mean that something like 40% of the Earth's population is going to have the chance to vote in some sort of democratic election. Now, we should say that this is a statistic that covers at least one of the most populous countries on the globe, which is India. And India, of course, has more than a billion inhabitants, so that tends to run the numbers up anyway. But other countries are also going to be part of this big festival of electoral democracy. The United States, perhaps, is the most prominent one across the the world. May well be an election in the United Kingdom. We don't know that yet. And then there are some that are in places where elections take place. They are technically multi-party elections, but some might argue that they operate according to standards that maybe are not quite as rigorous as those in established democracies. So I'm thinking of Russia here, where current leader Vladimir Putin has made it clear he's running again for president. But the point is that the the ritual of democracy, you might put it that way, in other words, people going to a ballot box or putting a ballot box in an envelope and posting it off, 
is still very much part of the data or the, the, the kind of year by year expectation of large numbers of people around the world. And one of the reasons I thought it would be fun to just talk about it a bit on History Behind the Headlines is that we sometimes fail to think about how recent a phenomenon this is in some terms. In other words, the idea of mass democracy in which pretty much all enabled citizens have a vote that enables them to choose between different political parties or different political leaders. I mean, there's an argument, for instance, that essentially that kind of full fat democracy doesn't really exist anywhere very much in the world until the early 20th century. And of course, amongst other things, we have to note that there are very few parties that gave women the vote until really quite late into the 20th century, in some cases, certainly a third to a halfway through. And yet, of course, states have been legitimate for centuries and centuries. And almost none of them, bar in the time zone or the period that we happen to live in, have enabled that legitimacy to be expressed through this particular system of casting ballots into a ballot box. So I wonder if there is, you know, a question there about whether or not we should see this as a historical moment that's maybe coming to something of a peak but maybe fading, or whether, in the words of political scientist Francis Fukuyama, famously about 35 years ago at the end of the Cold War, we have reached the end of history and going and casting our ballots. Uh, in the case, I think, of uh, Hannah and me, possibly actually quite close to each other somewhere in a uh, church hall somewhere in Oxford, uh, maybe, might be the ultimate expression of human political legitimacy. I don't know, Hannah, what do you think? You know, it's something that we may think automatically, but you know, is it is it really true? I think it's an extremely interesting point and thinking about it historically is a really interesting exercise, not least because it helps us to tease apart two rather different elements of democracy, I think. One is voting and the idea of representation and the other is to do with the idea of participation amongst a huge swathe of the population. In the period I study, the idea of representation of the wider populace is very far from anybody's minds, really. But the idea of political participation is very much present and present in ways which I think throw quite a lot of critical doubt on some of our assumptions about how things might work. So in the 14th century, for example, we see a huge rise in the process of political petitioning with people from the very humblest strata of society able to put their requests and their grievances into documents which then go to Parliament and get addressed and get dealt with. And the, the sort of the voluminousness of this phenomenon is really very, very striking. It's nothing like democracy in the terms in which we think about it, but it does enable a sense of wider political participation. And it's the very opposite of political apathy as well. I think that that idea of separating voting from the idea of participation is a really important one, Anna, because one of the things I think in the contemporary era we tend to get a little bit too tied to is the idea that if you give someone the vote, that's sufficient, particularly in a multi-party system, and all the other kind of political demands that they have can be essentially subsumed saying, well, you've got to vote, what more do you want? And at the same time, there are an awful lot of ways, even in the world that we live in now, that countries that don't operate on the basis of multi-party democracy still, of course, manage to constitute a rather different sort of state. There are fewer of those states now than there were perhaps, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, I would say that uh, something like Vietnam might be a good example of that, which, of course, still runs according to a communist system. But 
at the same time, there has been a trend which I think really has moved very, very strongly towards the idea that going and voting is the way in which you express that sort of idea. And again, I was, uh, and please don't say I don't know how to have a good time, but a couple of weeks ago, I was actually in Dallas, Texas, of all places. So I went to check out some important historical sites. One, uh, I actually went to check out the site of the JFK assassination, which is uh, macabre, as you can imagine, and really quite, you know, disturbing in many ways, but still fascinating because they've set it up as a, as a museum. But after that, I went to the perhaps slightly less visited site, which is the George W. Bush Presidential Library. Now, Hannah, I don't know if you've, you've visited there recently at all, but, uh, well, you know, something to take the family to, no doubt, for a, a fun day out. But one of the things that it does there is to make a very strong argument, and obviously it's it's a, it's a partisan one on the part of, of President Bush, that in Iraq and Afghanistan in the 2000s, they set up democracies because systems of multi-party voting took place there. And as part of this, they actually have a really actually quite interesting map which shows how few democracies there were on the globe as recently as 1945. In other words, at the end of World War II, and obviously the world had been devastated because of the conflict between the Axis and the, and the Allies. But at that point, you had a couple of spots in the Scandinavia, the UK, United States, and actually a few countries in, in South America as well. But aside from that, almost everything was either an occupied state or a colony. And so it's a reminder that it was really quite recently in historical terms that we've reached the situation where actually large proportions of the wider global population, 40%, according to at least one calculation for the year 2024, is going to be able to go and cast a ballot in that sort of a way. And yet there is a sort of past history history behind it as well. I, mean, we, I think we all know that ancient Greece, you know, Athens, is one of the, if not the earliest form of actually choosing people to legislate through that sort of popular choice. I mean, our own term, sophology, comes, I think, from the Greek sephos, which means pebble, which is what you threw into the jar to, to choose a particular candidate. But then it really sort of goes out of favour for really a very, very long time. There is a certain amount of voting, I think, in the Roman Republic. But after that, you don't get that much in the Western world and not much in the rest of the world either. And yet, a question which I think you'd be very expert on, actually, Hannah, has always puzzled me. Today, we assume that the papacy, you know, when the Pope is chosen, there's going to be a vote of the cardinals. They decide which of their various peers is going to become the next pontiff. Is that a long-standing election? In other words, is there a sort of long tradition of Popes being elected in that way? And does that say something about a wider culture of where a vote is considered to be appropriate? Gosh, that's a really interesting example, actually. Yes. So the cardinals for many centuries were expected each to cast a vote to choose a new pope. Perhaps the most striking example of this is in the 1370s when the papacy, which has been in Avignon for decades and decades, finally makes it back to France. The cardinals vote and they choose a new pope called Urban. And I think, well, their principal objection to him is that um, he wants to reform the way in which they operate and they're not keen on that at all. He goes about it in about the most undiplomatic, tactless way one, one could imagine. So I think one probably doesn't have much sympathy for either side in this. But anyway, they then elect another pope. And of course, Urban doesn't resign. So they then end up with two popes and we have the great papal schism. 1409, there's an attempt to resolve this by electing yet another pope, but they fail to depose the two they, that already exist. So it's a, like a kind of election mania, which goes completely wrong. If you don't manage to depose the previous person you've elected, then you end up with three of them. And out of this emerges a movement called conciliarism, which is really effectively about thinking about the relationship between those who are doing the electing 
and the person they elect. And that has very far-reaching consequences for political theory in late medieval and early modern Europe. This idea of voting for a pope then, Hannah, because I mean, you know, the 1300s is not a time that most of us would associate with the idea of a popular choice for a leadership candidate, even if it's within a very, very limited context. Obviously, the cardinals are an extremely elite group. Is that um, a tradition they draw on because they have some idea of voting that comes from elsewhere? Or is it sort of inherent within, within the church? I think it's rooted in the idea that the council, the idea of a council lies at the heart of the body of the church and that a group of people need to be appointed to choose who the Pope will be. It's certainly not a democratic idea, though, because this is in no way about popular participation or representation of any form of majority, really. It's about a very elite group of men who are already embedded in a particular institution who are going to be the ones to ones to choose the Pope. Of course, there's another element to all of this, which is that throughout the Middle Ages, Popes and secular rulers clash on a very regular basis about who will appoint bishops. So actually, the sort of, in a sense, biggest political debate in the Middle Ages isn't about whether one should elect people or not, according to kind of democratic means. It's about whether the papal power, the spiritual power, or the temporal power in the form of kings and Holy Roman emperors have the right to appoint many of those who lie at the, the heart of kind of institutionalised society. I think you made a really important point there, Hannah, which is one, again, I think we tend not to think about in the 21st century, which is that voting, democracy and popular participation are not all the same thing. And that being able to separate them out and understand they have their own historical trajectories is really important. I have to say another example, actually, of a European vote which caused problems from uh, the period before the uh, the current era came to mind, which was the Polish parliament, the SEM, of the 18th century. Because if I understood it correctly, that particular parliament was noted for having something called a unique veto, which meant that any member of the parliament, if they didn't like the policies that were being put forward, could vote no and everything would fall. And I'm just pointing out that Poland itself as a nation state or as a, as a state in, in Europe disappeared from the map really between the late 18th century and the early 20th. And at least some people would argue that it's sort of ultra participatory nature, at least for those who are entitled to be in the Polish parliament and who could just cast a veto on all sorts of policies through one vote may have been relevant to that particular downfall. Again, it's a sign that democracy demands consensus, but it also demands that those who are on the losing side do acknowledge that sometimes they can't get everything that they want. So from democracy to diplomacy, there's another story that I believe, Hannah, that you wanted to highlight. Is that right? Yes, I was reading The Big Issue the other day, and there was a fascinating story about so-called panda diplomacy and the repatriation of pandas from, I think, Edinburgh Zoo. So I was looking up a little bit about the phenomenon, which I wasn't particularly aware of, but it resonated in all kinds of interesting ways with the history of animals being given as diplomatic gifts and offerings across the ancient world, across the medieval period, into the early modern period. It seems to be a really interesting constant. And I wondered whether you could tell us a little bit more about what's going on with these pandas, Rana. 
Absolutely. So panda diplomacy is one of the probably most powerful means of soft power that China has used in the last half century or so. It actually emerged from what we could see with the quite well-known visit of Richard Nixon, President Nixon, to China in 1972. And of course, he was accompanied, amongst others, by Mrs. Nixon. And Mrs. Nixon apparently was at a state banquet with Zhou Enlai, the Chinese prime minister. And um, he had apparently, bear in mind, since 1972, so manners were different in those days. Uh, he had a pack of cigarettes with him at the dinner table. And Mrs. Uh, Nixon sort of pointed over into the cigarette packet, which had a picture of a panda on it and said, oh, that's rather nice. To which uh, Joe and I apparently said, oh, I'll give you one in that case. And she said, what, a cigarette? To which she said, no, a panda. And apparently that was the beginning of what has become a sort of half century in which the People's Republic of China sends pandas, usually in pairs, to zoos in the Western world as a means of basically promoting Chinese diplomacy, promoting good relations with China, but also, I think, not accidentally giving a sort of cuddly, cute symbol of what China is supposed to be in the wider world. I should say that this is quite smart diplomacy in various ways. First of all, other than I think the first couple of gifts, these are not in fact free gifts. They are rentals, so to speak. And in fact, off the top of my head figure is that it costs something like about a million dollars a year, I think, to basically in fees back to China for the maintenance of, of a pair of pandas. So zoos, uh, there are several in the United States uh, that have had them, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, uh, Edinburgh Zoo in the UK, of course, had one for quite some time. And it's perhaps a sign of relations between China and the West being in a somewhat scratchy area that pretty much all of the panda loans to Western countries, certainly to the US and UK, have, at least for the moment, come to an end in the last few weeks. That's partly because the pandas have reached a certain age, and it's generally apparently thought that it's kinder for them to be brought back to their home habitat for the last year or two of their lives, because they you know, have a fixed lifespan, obviously. But there doesn't seem to be at the moment anything other than a few slightly warm words, but not much more than that about any more pandas being sent to the Western world. There is, of course, an argument that maybe sending pandas around the world to unfamiliar environments, to zoos, isn't as good an idea in the public mind as it would have been in the 1970s. But on the other hand, there's certainly a kind of diplomatic significance to the fact that these cute, cuddly animals, which created that bond between China and the West for you know so many decades, no longer are going to be there to be that symbol of kind of animal diplomacy. I don't know, again, Hannah, whether or not the sort of panda case is unique or whether or not actually animals have more broadly had that kind of role in terms of the relations between different countries. There are heaps and heaps of historical examples of animals being given between countries. So say going right back to the ancient world is a wonderful example of Cleopatra perhaps giving a giraffe to Caesar, which became known as a camel leopard because people couldn't quite figure out whether it was a giraffe or a camel or a leopard. So they came up with this amazing new term for it. Um, and then throughout the Middle Ages, there are fascinating examples. Of course, there's the menagerie at the Tower of London as well, which began its days under Henry III. So in 1230, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II sent what were probably three cheetahs as a gift in order presumably to show off that he could do this and to to improve relations and so on. 
It's this very strange phenomenon, though, and I have spent some time wondering why animals should be such a powerful means of diplomacy. Some animals clearly have particular kind of symbolism attached to them. So you're given a lion and it's something about strength and power and so on. You give a panda and as you say, it's they're gorgeous and cute and lovely. And it's a, it's a really warm way of demonstrating something. I wonder as well whether, um, you were saying just how much it costs to keep these pandas as well, and whether actually giving an animal as a gift rather than, I don't know, a golden cup in the 13th century or something. It's also quite an interesting gift in that you have to care for it. So the Tower of London had its own well, I was reading the other day, actually, about um, an ostrich, which was given in the 15th century um, by a merchant, actually, who really wanted to kind of suck up to the King of England. And luckily, the king already had his own keeper of the royal ostrich. So that was fine. So, you know, the idea that you've got to care for these things and to nurture them and to sort of devote a certain amount of resources to them. I wonder whether that's part of the diplomatic process of giving animals, that they are particularly effective as diplomatic gifts, because it's about a continuous kind of relationship that you're promoting. Though, of course, lots of these animals then die and that certainly happens in the Tower of London. Um, I think Henry had a polar bear, which did not last very long in London, very tragically. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yes, I think uh, I think I have to choose the least appropriate place to keep a polar bear. Probably, kind of the centre of London would, would would be it. Well, I think your point about having to look after the animal actually is a very astute one because I'm thinking of one example. You mentioned giraffes, the camelopard, and actually, it ain't just in the um, the classical world where that happened because um, one of the most notable, if perhaps not the most notable, Chinese sailor of the pre-modern era, the Admiral Zheng He, who, as is perhaps well known, in the Ming Dynasty, in the uh, about the same sort of time, actually, of course, in the, in the 1400s, was sent out on seven voyages by the Yongle Emperor, the Ming Dynasty Emperor of China. And he visited, not quite Europe, but certainly large stretches of the Eurasian world, uh, the Straits of Hormuz, Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, and even the coast of Africa. And that was where he got one of his major menagerie gains, if you might put it that way, because it's said that he actually managed to capture, amongst other things, a strange creature with a long neck and spots, which he brought back to Nanjing, the the capital in in China. Now, we would think of this, of course, as the giraffe. But in Chinese mythology, this was recognized as being the Qilin. And if you're seeing a Qilin, you're in a very good place as the emperor. It's the equivalent of seeing something like a unicorn, I would say, in uh, the, the European tradition. Because what it suggests, this very, very rare and unusual beast is a sign of a blessed rain that's going to go extraordinarily well. And the good luck that they managed to, to achieve of getting this giraffe and letting it survive and getting it all the way back to China to appear at court was good luck in the, in the sense that we would use that, uh, that phrase and that they were lucky it didn't die. But at the same time, imagine carrying a, you know, having 
having a giraffe go all the way across the Indian Ocean, even in a quite large ship of the of the medieval era. That, that's that's quite something. But at the same time, making sure that the Chilin stayed alive as long as possible must clearly have been a task for the Ming Dynasty court, because presumably if it turned up and conked out, it would have been an extremely dire sign for the future of that particular emperor. As it happened, he lived a, a pretty long period on the throne. He was a usurper himself, which is one of the things that meant that, going back to our earlier theme, legitimacy was very important to him. He had to show that he really was the righteous emperor, even though he'd taken the throne basically by overthrowing the previous uh, previous emperor. And giraffe diplomacy or giraffe symbolism was something that was clearly very important to him. And Admiral Zheng He did a, a good deed in helping the emperor to boost that particular aspect of his rule. It's fascinating, isn't it, to be able to connect these gifts of animals back to themes of political legitimacy. So in 1393, the people of London gave a pelican and a camel to Richard II. I have no idea where they got them from. But again, that's a fascinating moment in terms of the people of London more generally trying to demonstrate their allegiance, but also their political participation in giving these gifts and in getting themselves involved. I think the other thing that's really interesting about your example, Rana, is this sense that animals might have one set of associations and and one set of kind of symbolic meanings in one culture. And then when given as a diplomatic gift elsewhere, they might resonate in particular ways because they map onto particular beliefs or cultural practices somewhere else. And my favorite story is from the travels of Marco Polo the 13th century Italian merchant who travels right across Asia when he encounters an animal for the first time, which he's never seen before, and he describes it to us as a unicorn. But he says, it's not like the unicorns in Europe, which lay their heads on a virgin's lap, because these unicorns have very thick skins and they are really vicious and they love wallowing in mud and they're very bristly and very aggressive. And of course, he's probably describing a rhinoceros, but he doesn't have the terminology for doing that. So it becomes a unicorn in his count. Well, I think anyone hoping to give a rhinoceros as a uh, diplomatic gift in the present day would be stopped probably not only by the difficulties of caring for them, because they're very rare creatures these days, but one suspects the environmental authorities would have something to say about taking them out of their habitat. So maybe on that, if no other matter, we live in slightly more enlightened times in these days. And that leads us nicely into our next topic we want to talk about, which is the environment more generally. And Hannah, you wanted to talk about this to start with, I think. Yes. So we've been thinking a great deal about the climate over the past year, indeed, over the past several decades. These are very anxious times. And I think probably climate-based anxiety is one of the great kind of social currents of our time. But it's also a matter for policymakers and it's a matter for activists. And it's something that we're all thinking about in many different ways. So I've been wondering about the ways in which we might turn to environmental change in the past to think about some of the assumptions we make now about what's going on with the climate. For me, the kind of standout moment is the early 14th century, which sees the beginning of what historians tend to term the Little Ice Age. Actually, there's a lot of disagreement about when this begins, but clearly at the start of the 14th century, there is some pretty dramatic climactic changes. And people who study ice core samples and dendrochronology and so on um, provide some pretty compelling evidence that around the year 1300, the temperature drops dramatically. The effect of that is catastrophic. So whereas the 12th and 13th centuries were warm, in Europe and periods actually of really great prosperity and enormous advances in many respects. 
the year 1300 ushers in a new era of enormous suffering of horrific famines, crop failure, cattle moraine, very cold, wet summers, extremely cold winters, which offer very little respite. Famine, which between 1310, 1325 or so, probably kills about 25% of the European population tends to get forgotten alongside the effects of the Black Death in 1348. And I wonder whether rather horrifically it gets forgotten because famine affects the poorest in society, whereas bubonic plague apparently affected everybody. Though, of course, in practice, it didn't quite. But I do think it's an interesting moment for us to think about the ways in which societies and politics responded to really dramatic environmental change and the horrific human implications of that. I think perhaps the thing that stands out most to me about the famine in the 1310s is reflecting back on a commentary about famine by Amartya Sen, who points out that famine doesn't just mean that harvests fail and there's not enough food. It's a failure of institutions to distribute what there is. In the 1310s, there clearly isn't enough food, but at the same time, there are particular social, institutional, political structures in place, which means that things mean that things are not distributed. So coming back to the present day, I suppose it, it's a useful way, I think, of reflecting on the importance of what policymakers are doing in response to climate change. Rana, does this resonate with the kinds of themes that you think about? Very much so. Uh, I mean, I think, first of all, that quote from Arthur Sen, very, very important, reminding us that famine isn't just one of those things that just happens. Uh, it is very much a failure of institutions, of governments, of people, and is eminently preventable. It's sometimes been said that no democracy has ever had a famine. That may not be quite literally true, but on the other hand, it's certainly true that democracies tend to have the responsive mechanisms that allow people to actually respond to that kind of catastrophe, which I was going to call environmental, which it is in part, but also of course, human uh, human made, and of course, Amartya Sen himself was brought up when he was young in the years of the terrible Bengal famine of 1943, which he remembers still, of course, um, when he was only a boy, as leading to huge numbers of starving people in the streets in, uh, of Calcutta, where he grew up. But there's lots of examples, and again, this comes back to that, uh, I think we've got a lot of themes coming together today, but the idea of legitimacy, which isn't necessarily engendered by, by voting. So again, the, the many of the dynasties of China tried to maintain what they called ever full granaries. In other words, food stores, food banks, you might call them, in which you know, grain and other products were held back for a period when there would be some kind of downturn in the harvest and the crop, probably for environmental reasons, at least um, at the first instance, and that redistribution could be made. Now, I don't want to romanticise these. There's plenty of evidence that ever full granaries weren't actually all that full all the time. There was a lot of corruption in many cases, so they weren't maintained the way they should have been. But the principle, I think, was a very interesting one. It goes back to that institution's point, I think, really, Hannah, which is that a big, large imperial state is saying, we recognise that there are times when actually harvests will fail. And it is the job of us as the state to actually find ways to try and mitigate that particular set of problems. And... If I think about the contrasts, actually, with some of the great famines that happened in the 20th century in Asia in particular, it's notable that what tends to bring them together is a situation, first of all, an environmental disaster, 
a situation of wartime and a state that is either weak or compromised. And just briefly summarize what I mean by that. Uh, if you think about the mid-1940s, when you get three major famines taking place in Bengal, in India, the one I've mentioned, the one in China in about the same time, 1942-43, in central China in Henan province, and also in Southeast Asia in sort of you know Vietnam, you can see that all of these factors come together. So India in 1943 is, of course, still under the British Empire. And although there's a huge debate about what were the causes of the massive Bengal famine, which killed, you know, two million people at that time, certainly the inability of local administrations to distribute food and get it to where it was needed sits very much at the heart of that. There are then debates about whether this was known at the central level or the local level, but the phenomenon of food not being distributed. At a time, of course, the Second World War, when there's huge distraction in terms of a massive war in Asia, and also, of course, the environmental problems on the Ganges River. Then you get something similar in China. Again, you get an environmental disaster that means that the harvests are not sufficient. At the same time, there's a war. China and Japan are fighting to the death in the central provinces of, uh, of China. And the, the Chinese state is weak at that time. It's desperately in need of uh, grain to feed the soldiers. And it confiscates grain from starving peasants because it needs to send them to the, the army in an act of immense inhumanity. And then finally, Southeast Asia, again, you get you know a French colony that's occupied by the Japanese. You have sort of competing empires, cyclones and all sorts of other environmental disasters that are taking place. And again, a sort of revolutionary situation that emerges to make things very unstable. So environmental disasters are, of course, a product of the environment, but it's rare that they're only ever a product of the environment and that human agency doesn't have something to do with creating uh, an even worse situation in many of these cases. That said, I think it's really important to note the way in which a combination of environmental change, but also globalization, have created some positives as well. I was thinking actually of one of the most interesting books I read this year, which was Peter Frankopan's big new book on climate change and environment and how it's changed human history. And I'm thinking about there about the way that actually new crops, and often very nutritious crops, could be grown in parts of the world where they hadn't been seen before because the environment was amenable to those crops being introduced. So potatoes coming from the new world, obviously, to Europe. That changes the economies of all sorts of places. In Western Europe, in particular, becomes potato-centric in a way that simply wouldn't have been the case before the early modern period. Also true, actually, of course, for China, where um, products such as chilies, uh, you know, which many people associate with Sichuan food from southwest China, but of course, those chilies are new world crops. They come essentially from Central and South America, or indeed maize, sweet potatoes, various other products from the new world. They it turned out to grow like gangbusters in the soil of Asia. But had it not been for that spread of global trade and new types of cultivars that enable people to actually grow things outside their natural areas uh, of, of, of origin, then an awful lot of people remained underfed. So I wonder if there's a more positive story to tell Hannah as well about some of the ways in which shifting human ingenuity and combining it with environmental and agrarian circumstance can have plus points as well. I think that's absolutely Absolutely true. And in the period I study as well, part of what is so striking are sheer levels of resilience and adaptability shown by many communities. So, for example, many of the villages which moved position in the Middle Ages, people assume they moved position because of mass mortality during the Black Death. But actually, very often it was to do with changing farming methods, people really trying to make the most of different kinds of soil and to adapt to changing climatic conditions. So I think that adaptability and that resilience is a hopeful message. But at the same time, 
same. The sort of flip side of that that we see again and again and again is that that needs a set of policies underpinning it, which have a, a, a wider sense of the common good, to put it in 14th century terms. And the 14th century, of course, is a particularly interesting century because they do think about the common good, the common wheel, in fresh ways, articulating what might benefit the wider community. I wouldn't say they're particularly successful in benefiting the wider community, but still a sense that one should be thinking about how to ensure that things are equally distributed and that technological advancements don't simply exacerbate existing inequalities. Absolutely. And of course, I'm sure that idea of the common wheel is still something that animates an awful lot of people now when they're thinking about issues like global food. And we've just finally got time to talk about Oxford University Press's Oxford Word of the Year 2023, which in case anyone hasn't heard, Rana, can you tell us what that word was? Yes, I'm reliably informed, Matt, that the word is Riz, spelled R-I-Z-Z. I'm not sure there is a standardised spelling, but apparently it's the O-E-D, so this is it. Now, for those you know, few listeners who may not know what this is, it essentially it means kind of attractiveness or capacity to sort of charm or impress other people, and it's short for the word charisma. You can also use it as a verb. So uh, I, I asked a 15-year-old with whom I'm closely acquainted uh, about the use of this word, to which she explained um, that, uh, yes, this word was actually quite widely used but people stopped using it just about the same time that the OED discovered it. So I think it may have come onto the books just at the point when actual 15-year-olds are no longer <laughs> saying it. But they said it could be used um, She said it could be used as a verb as well. So you could riz someone up in terms of trying to use your charm or charisma to essentially get them to do what you want them to, uh, to, to do. But I found this fascinating, Hannah, because actually in some ways I was quite impressed by the young people using the word charisma, which of course is it's not an uncommon word, but it has a rather particular sort of kind of atmosphere around it, uh, an implication around it. It's a word, of course, that comes originally from classical Greek. Uh, it's not a new word in, in that sense. And yet, in some ways, I guess, over time, it's also sort of tied up in the European context with ideas about sort of church, religion, inspiration, these sorts of things. Is there a sort of longer history of charisma in the European tradition across the, the centuries, would you say? I think there's a really fascinating longer tradition of, of charisma. I'm reminded of the German sociologist Max Weber, who talked a great deal about charisma as a sort of historical category. So he said there's three kind of bases for, for rulership. There's tradition, there's law, and there's charisma. And I think very often people tend to assume that medieval rulers gained their authority solely through charisma that it's to do with powerful personalities, figures like Henry V who march onto the battlefield and are generally kind of magnificent and impressive and so on. But the fact is charisma wasn't enough. And I was thinking about Henry V's predecessor but one, Richard II, who tried to rely far too much on his charisma. He was the one who we were talking about earlier, being given a pelican by the people of London. Richard II tried to behave in a way that overrode the laws effectively, and he was in fact deposed. And another man came to the throne, a usurper, Henry IV, who quite explicitly said that he had deposed Richard II because he did not deserve to be a king because he was behaving in a way which was tyrannical. He was behaving in a way which is above the laws. So in his deposition articles, he said, the king did not want to uphold the just laws and customs of his realm, but rather, according to the prompting of his own will, he did whatever he desired. And essentially, the accusation is precisely that Richard II thought he could rely on his own charisma, not on the institutions of kingship, a sort of tradition bit, and not on the laws. Apparently he believed that laws were only in his own mouth 
but he could do whatever he liked. So this is not a period of sort of divine right of kings. It's not a period when charisma alone is enough to justify rulership. And I suspect that actually throughout history, what we find much more often is a really interesting sort of dialectic between charisma and the institution of a particular position which which gives somebody their authority. Well, of course, that would never happen in the present day, the idea of some leader deciding that their own charismatic words were enough to basically keep them going and abandoning the laws and constitutions and everything would be perfectly fine. But that would clearly, you know, not happen today. I think we're back actually, Hannah, with our old friend legitimacy again, you know, what it is that actually enables people to say that they have the right to rule, the right to control and the right for the consensus of the people who they're in charge of. And charisma, I think it's one of those things, you know, in some ways, it's a very positive word. You know, generally we describe people as charismatic or, you know, we think of what it is that brings them, brings it to mind. It's something quite positive. And yes, of course, like other things, it can have this potentially quite dangerous aspect to it. Through charisma, you draw people into making choices or breaking institutions that they wouldn't have done uh, before in that sense. I was intrigued that actually in the, the longer Christian tradition, it's often associated with another word, which again, we tend to hear perhaps less recently, perhaps it'll be next year's OED word, which is grace. Perhaps because in some ways we don't live in an era today when grace or graciousness is necessarily thought of as something that is central to the way that public life operates. But in a sense, I think that that perhaps says something about our secular age, because the idea of grace, the idea of something that in some ways in the in the Christian tradition is, is, is very much embedded in the idea of how the material world and the spiritual world come together, was something surely very central for a lot of people in that earlier era, in a way that in our modern era, charisma and these sorts of ideas have become perhaps more, more purely secular. I think that's a really interesting point, yes. But again, it's always a very, very fine balance. So I was struck by how sometimes charisma, I think, is most apparent by its absence. So in a sense, if one's trying to think about medieval charisma, it becomes most clear with the monarchs who clearly, completely lack it. Henry VI being a prime example. He's completely hopeless in lots of ways and certainly lacking the charisma of his father, Henry V. But Henry VI is very interesting because he is a very, very holy man. And after his death, there's actually a, a collection of miracle stories which accumulate about miraculous happenings which apparently were brought to be by people coming to visit his body, which are fascinating sources in themselves. But it's really interesting that, you know, him being really kind of super holy and spiritual like that was not enough to compensate for his lack of sort of forceful personality and so on. So I think in a sense, the Middle Ages are an interesting case study in reminding us that I said earlier, a dialectic between charisma and institutions, but it's much more than that, isn't it? It's a kind of fine balance between institutions, a kind of secular forceful personality, a sense of holiness, and equally thinking very carefully about behaving in line with the rule of law. Well, where are we going to find someone like that in the present day, one has to uh, has to ask. Maybe those elections we started with in 2024 are going to be where everyone comes around and perhaps ends up voting for all sorts of people who have all of those characteristics. Maybe the global electorate, all that 40% of it that's going to vote in uh, the next year or so, will get rizzed up by a variety of, uh, of leaders. I think we do live in an interesting moment, though, going back to what you were saying about grace in terms of 
people thinking about the value of kindness. I don't think it has a huge role to play in contemporary politics, but in contemporary discourse more generally, I think there are ways in which our society is more attuned to the value of kindness, perhaps. And it'd be very interesting to see whether the kind of aggressive sort of talk, which tends to characterise canvassing and so on before elections, whether that sort of wider sense of a valuing of kindness has any place to play in that and whether that resonates with a longer history of grace. One can but hope that that's One the case. And certainly in an era which was very different from any earlier era when social media means that we're all much closer to each other, whether we want to be or not. The idea of uh, charisma and also the idea of grace are things that I think are well, one is perhaps more visible than the other. An awful lot of charismatic characters on social media, one way or another. The number of gracious characters seems to me to be a bit more limited. Maybe that's where your idea of kindness is one that we should stick with and think about in, in all sorts of all sorts of ways. Plenty to think about there. With that, we are out of time for another episode. We'll be back on the 6th of February. But for now, Hannah and Rana, thank you both so much for your time as always. Thank you.